welcome along to this very special edition of the Tree Castles Burning podcast, uh, which is part of the James Connolly Festival. Uh, my guest today is Eugene McCartan from the Communist Party of Ireland uh, and Connolly Books. Connolly Books, right in the heart of the centre of Dublin, has an extraordinary history that I suppose traces itself, brings itself right back to some of the most important events in Irish revolutionary history, but also the broader story uh, of 20th century radicalism. You know, in this bookshop were men who had gone to Spain uh, with the International Brigades, where men and women who were at the centre of the Civil Rights Movement and other important campaigns in Ireland in the 1960s uh, and 70s. It's a place of politics, but it's also been very much a place of culture through its history. And I think the story of Connolly Books is deeply entangled in the broader story of communism and indeed anti-communism uh, in 20th century Irish history. Eugene, I suppose at the very beginning, it's worth making the point, some people will hear the words Irish and communism mm -hmm. together and think, Ireland historically may be a very unfertile field for communism, but there is a, a, a radical tradition which co the Communist Party and Connolly Books would see itself as part of. Oh, very much so. And the Communist Party, uh, the first communist organisations uh, that were connected to the First International of Karl Marx and Fede Engels way back in the 18, uh, 1860s, um, they were, uh, there was a number of the committees of the First International were, were established and uh, here in Ireland and from from some places like Coothill, Belfast, Dublin and Cork. Um, uh, but they were connected to agrarian local, local struggles, uh, um, local developments of the working class in Ireland itself beginning to emerge and develop in the 1870s and stuff. Uh, so it has connected into that, uh, the Fenians, uh, the actual uh, Irish national independence struggle had an influence upon Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. Uh, they developed their, it helped them, their, Marx and Engels' connections to the uh, to the Fenians helped them develop a better understanding of oppressed peoples and, nation, and nations, and the important role in that in in, in the struggle, and uh, which shaped and developed Karl Marx's understanding and Engels' understanding of this particular of the whole concept of national struggles and national independence on oppressed peoples. That came in through on up through into the establishment of, of the first uh, working class party of uh, 1896 of James Connolly's the Irish uh, Socialist Republican Party. Uh, it was the first working independent working class party here in Ireland uh, of, a, of an independent working class perspective. Uh, from that, uh, then it, that developed when Connolly left and he came back and he's founded the Socialist Party. Uh, it was also, it has constants, there's also constantly, there's a constant red thread mm -hmm. through Irish history from the, uh, the late 19th century and it was always connected into the national independence struggle. So that red thread is not something which is uh, of contemporary, but if there's long historical roots in that whole struggle of, of the, the Lincoln of the workers' struggle and the national struggle, the national independence struggle, that red thread is running, has been running through it. And I love the flag of the, the CPI, mm -hmm. because of course, as you would expect from a Communist Party, the hammer and sickle is there, mm -hmm. but it's also that sunburst, the, sun, the, the flag that's, of that's, revolutionary yeah, Ireland. Yeah, the sun, that's the, that's the, the old uh, interpretation of the old Fenian, the Fenian sunburst. So that has been that, and then you had, uh, coming out of that, uh, the whole Larkin and Connolly establishing of the Irish Transport General Workers' Union was also the, the beginnings of an independent Irish trade union movement. Yes. Uh, up until then, the, uh, the trade unions in Ireland were either craft unions or unions connected into Britain. 
And so Connolly and Larkin began that process as Connolly did with the establishment of, a, of, a, of an independent working class party, a revolutionary party uh, in the late 19th century, early 20th century. They began, they built the Irish Transport and General Workers Union as an independent expression of an independent working class separate from the British working class, uh, separate from London, and, and striking out an independent pose for the working class movement uh, in Ireland at that time. Of course, the great problem in Ireland was that some of the working class identified as the British working class. Yeah. And, you know, and they, I know your, your accent's a Ulster accent from County Down. Yeah. But do you think that that issue, I suppose, of, of a British identity in what was Ireland's industrial capital, the city of Belfast, yeah. was the, perhaps the great hindrance to the development of socialism, the Walker, Connolly well, debates and the like? Yeah, they, they, I, do think, I do think that if you look back, like all things, we, none of us can, we don't make decisions based upon hindsight. We based upon decisions based upon reflective back on historical experience, both yesterday, the day before, and the week before, the year before. So you, as you're, you're, so the lessons you learn from life, you be as you try to base your decisions upon. You, historians can have the luxury of yes. uh, of reflective glory on looking back on what decisions of people made on the heat of the battle. Uh, yes. The heat of the battle doesn't give you that time. Sometimes you just makes decisions which you draw up the balance of forces, and sometimes you get it right, and sometimes you get it wrong. And that is where the that we look at it. And to the degree, if you reflect back uh, of a century since the, the, this year we marked the centenary of the first Communist Party in 1921, uh, in October 23, uh, 23rd of October 1921 was the founding of the Communist Party by Roddy Connolly, uh, James Connolly's son, uh, McGuire's people that got, uh, uh, all those people that come out of the, who were involved in the civil, uh, the, the uh, Irish Citizen Army or the Irish Volunteers, uh, or the, uh, the militants out of the Irish Transport and General Workers Union that came together, that fusion of radical republicanism and radical working class struggle. So the, what has fused, the, what has shaped the temperament, the ideas of the Communist Party has been militant class politics and militant republicanism, marrying the two of them together. And I think today, if we reflect back, What's happened in the labour movement in Ireland mm. has been, to a degree, in the 26 counties, has been the consolidation of Redmondism inside the labour movement, and in the north has been the consolidation of Walkerism. Uh, you see they're themselves organically linked to the British labour movement, uh, whereas Connolly argued that the Irish labour movement is following on from his own ideas of an independent political structure, an independent trade union structure. Connolly argued that the labour movement in Ireland should be independent, have its own political strategy and everything else, and they should be linked uh, to the British Labour by bonds of solidarity and cooperation, whereas Walkerism was about organic links tied into the British Labour movement. Yes. That meaning then the, the political and organisational priorities of the British Labour movement would become, would dominate the Irish Labour movement, and that's where Connolly wanted to break, that, that the Irish working class itself must define its own historical uh, needs of the moment in time and then fight for those. The name you mentioned there, Roddy Connolly, when you look at the the communist movement in that, in that moment in time, people like uh, Paddy Stevenson, people like uh, Sean McLaughlin, they were very, very young, those radicals in the revolutionary movement. And they kind of, they, they rubbish that line from, from Kevin O'Higgins, who said we were the most conservative people who ever had a successful revolution. There was that tendency there, and they were kind of young working class people who pushed it. Yep, it, it, it is that, and uh, it is, but even the, the, at the time, and not alone was the split in the workers' movement globally, and, and particularly in Europe, uh, about the difference between social reformism and radical revolutionaries, it was also within that itself was age. As a younger generation, Lenin and all those were young, were young, but they come out of it, well, Karl Kowski was the grandfather of the, the workers' movement of Europe. 
and uh, very, very stuck and the whole labour movement at that time in Europe was controlled by social democracy, was of a very age of a generation. Then, the, so the Bolsheviks inspired a whole new generation and out of that came uh, the younger generation, came out of Roddy Connolly, uh, McLaughlin and sort of uh, Nora Connolly and all those people came out of that whole struggle and brought with that, that fresh approach and they challenged uh, the old established order inside who controlled the Irish Transport and General Workers Union, who controlled uh, the Socialist Party after, after uh, 1916 when Connolly's execution. So, you had that generational thing, but I think was was sort of linked into has, has always been part of the parcel of the of of uh, the communist movement in Ireland, uh, and it's all over. But in particular, I can only speak for the one in Ireland uh, that education, political education, was central to that. The political ideas, um, and you should find on the left, the left should be a place of ideas. That's not a that's not a sign of weakness. It's mm -hmm. a sign of strength that you, if you're constantly discussing and debating where you are, where you want to go to, is an indication that you're actually trying to grapple with people's problems. Whereas if you have a, if you're not, there's no discussion and no debate, then you cease to grow and cease to develop because society in itself is constantly changing and yes. evolving around you. But if you're not constantly developing and trying to keep on keep on top of what's going on, then you cease to cease to have any relevance to people. So education, political education, was extremely important. Uh, within the communist movement. That then flowed from that to have a, a place where people could go to find that, 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 uh, that literature. And that's where the, the communist movement, uh, uh, when they, uh, in the 1930s, with the emergence of the, when the first communist party and they struggled, they brought out their own newspapers. That's what always makes me strange when you hear the left talk about today, they say, well, working people can't really understand these big complex questions. If anybody's read any of the old workers' papers yeah. from the 1920s, even before, they talk about the labour theory of value and they talk about profits and everything else, and they explain all these complex things to workers. Yeah. And the workers actually were then, most of the workers would have left school at 10 or 12 years of age. And they were explaining all, in, this, in their newspapers and magazines, they were explaining all these complex economic questions and political questions to workers. Whereas today, that's frowned upon. Yes. You see, and when workers have gone through education and some of them have gone to university, you're thinking, why wouldn't people understand this? So there's a condescending attitude towards much of the left towards working people. As if, oh, they're not really capable of understanding that whole thing. So there's a, there's a condescending attitude towards that. I think working people have a great sense of these things. Um, there's a neat sense of they balance their books, they balance their wage package every week, every month. Yes. They understand economics. You understand it very much because basically they're dependent upon they're able to. Their very existence depends upon they're able to manage their own money. So. I think there's a there is a whole question of this that to a degree is that there is this question of I think which is important for for, for, for activists to understand that um, that we people we are we are aware that constantly capitalism goes through crisis, their economic crisis, financialization, all those type of things. That but we haven't been able to explain to people yeah. how, how about people's own alienation, that they're alienated from what the wealthy produce, they con don't control or decide how it is used. They're alienated from all types of aspects of society, culturally, economically, politically. Alienated. They don't feel actually any part of this, and they feel part of it, but outside of it. Yes. The mechanisms of control basically control them, do not allow them to be part and parcel to make those decisions. So they're, so they're isolated from it, so they're alienated from all the senses of power and the mechanisms of control. Therefore, understandable why more and more people refuse, no longer wish to vote, or maybe they feel alienated from a culture. Because basically they see them things which are about controlling them rather than actually about expressions of what they want. So I think that's where we have to, the left has to look at. So education is extremely important to that. In the 1930s, whenever the Communist Party had the headquarters in, in uh, Strand Street, 
what do they have there? They, they had a library full of books. Yes. A library full of books. Full of books. That was, I mean, that time, I always think about that time, because in, in one way, the 30s is a great heroic decade of, of communism in Ireland in terms of the battlefields of Spain. It's also the most challenging decade of communism in Ireland in terms of hostility. But the decade kind of began with the immediate aftermath of the Wall Street crash. I mean, it felt to people, I think everyone felt capitalism from the left and right was finished. That was the, the sense that was there. But the, the very deep emerging anti-communism in Ireland in the 30s left very long-lasting scars, I think. You would have, when you came into radical politics first, you would have met veterans of that time. The extent of anti-communism in the 30s was just incredible. Yeah, there, 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 is all, there is all of that, an understanding of all that. Uh, and I think we need to go back again to understand the, 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 church, uh, the church were the ideological foot soldiers or the stormtroopers of the, of the uh, Irish establishment. If you go back and you look at it, the Irish establishment, the reasons why partition came about were because the Irish establishment believed that they were unable, they would be that strong enough on their own to control what they saw was a very virulent working class. In the 19, early 1920, 1921, 22, there's huge amounts of workers' struggles, the occupations, workers' Soviets, all over the place. Uh, most of the workers, uh, the Irish Transport Union went from a, f a few handful of members uh, after, the, after 1913, 1916, exploded membership and by 1920, 1919, 1920, it nearly 100,000 members. So a massive growth in a number of short number of years, that, that reflected a growth in consciousness among workers. The importance to get involved in trade unions, the importance to get involved in organising and defending themselves. And that was both urban and rural workers got involved in that whole struggle. And then flowing from that then, a lot of those workers who are active, active shop stewards, who are active in the workers' movement, all became involved in the national independence struggle. They became active volunteers, active commanders of the IRA in this war of independence. And so the ruling class knew what the social forces are, were involved in the national independence movement. They knew they couldn't necessarily control if this thing got out of hand. And the same with unionism. Unionism itself mm. had been confronted by a working class movement which was strong, organised. And so therefore, it, it benefited, partition benefited both the capitalist class in, in Dublin and the unionist capitalist class in Belfast, because both of them on their own were not strong enough. And yeah. both of them sought the shield of, of, Briti of, of the British Empire to protect their interests. And to a degree, when the free state was established, where did they go, what, what did they call upon? They, because basically, the, the, the very existence of the state was questioned. Yes. It was, its legitimacy was questioned by the people, by a large section of the people, questioned the very legitimacy of the state. So therefore, how did they do that? By, by I think, I think they took, they, they used the Catholic Church as the stormtroopers to basically, ideologically, to control the communities, to drive out any activists, uh, Republican and radical left activists were driven out of the country, were marginalised, and therefore they controlled the schools. And, and the price they paid was they, they got the control of the schools, they got control of the hospitals, they got control of means of life were controlled by the church. We were controlled by the church. Well, the so was so extreme and so everywhere and so common that even the IRA, which kind of briefly flirted with socialism, with things like the Osir era and the policies they developed around economic independence, that even people like the IRA, with the exception of honourable people like Padre O'Donnell and the like, were fearful of, of communism. Absolutely. It, it was the, the stick to beat people with, if you will. Absolutely. That was, that was in the 1930s and uh, flowing from that. And, but it didn't stop there. The massive struggles went on against the landlords, against them. Um, against the, uh, the, the, the question of in Dublin and cities. There was a massive struggles against, uh, around the whole question of landlordism and mm. rack rent and landlords. There was also a massive struggle around the land question, land annuities. So that was also why they had to intensify that struggle as well. 
because that was a challenge to, to, for the, the left, the Republican Congress and the Communists were arguing against uh, the payment of land annuities. That was a huge challenge to the political establishment because mm -hmm. that was the deal they'd done with the Brits uh, yes. to pay the land annuities. And so if you've got all these buggers and radicals running around the country saying, don't pay this, don't pay this, and very, that was going to cause problems. And I think it reflected in uh, Jim Gralton, his land agitation at that time, but most importantly, was land was around still was still a big question, and therefore they hammered home, they hammered the, the rural radicals because they were marginalised and isolated, and in Dublin and in the big cities they were able to control them because, yeah. like everything else, they controlled. Once you control the the employment, control the means of, of existence, therefore you, you can control control it. But they, they, as I say, that whenever the Communist uh, the Revolution Workers Group and they set up the Communist Party and then the, the Connolly House in Strand Street, uh, the, uh, the important thing was about uh, material. So whenever they ransacked the building in, in Strand Street and they burned it down, uh, it was a combination of both the IRA and the Communist Party which defended the building for, for a f substantial period of time despite the mass mobs and stuff like that. And then the funny thing about it was some of the people who were out on the street trying to champion for blood uh, to burn the Communist Party offices down ended up going to Spain and become lifelong yes. communists. So you've got all this contradiction. I think Ireland's a very, Ireland's a, is a complex place because this whole struggle around national independence, national unity, uh, has, has, a, has a thing, has a, how do you say, they all, for, in Dublin, there's always, you'd know, there was always a Republican Labour yes. vote. There was always a Republican Labour vote. It predominated mainly on the north side of the city, but also maybe around Francis Street, Thomas Street, that area. But there's always a Republican Labour vote in this city and has been for many, 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 many decades. But you're, so you're alluding that. there to, um, to Bob Doyle, who had been in, yeah. the, in the Pro Cathedral. Mm. And in his memoir, he talks about the, the, the sermon. He talks about the Jesuit telling them that the, the vile creatures of communism are in our midst. And there was some mad claim that they were eating babies on Strand Street and everything else. Do you think there's a lesson in that? I mean, at the moment, obviously, right across Europe, the way politics have split. And there's been a very right-wing dimension to a lot of you know, the anti-lockdown politics and the like. That someone like Bob Doyle, who found himself whipped into that frenzy in the 30s and was throwing stones at Connolly House, within a couple of short months, was engaging with those ideas that you never, you never write off um, the working class, if you know what I no, mean. No, no, I don't think it's uh, to a degree. It's uh, you do that at your uh, at your own uh, detriment. And I think that um, I'll go back to the point. I think there's there's a degree of hostility, of arrogance, uh, among the left towards working class people. Uh, there's a condescending attitude. Um, the approaches towards either they're only cat, they're only voting fodder. Therefore, uh, you, give, you tell tell them what you think they want to hear. Um, there's no concept of actually of mobilising, of challenging the ideas in people's heads and saying, look, you're not actually work operating in your own self-interest, which you're actually working against your own self-interest if you go down this road. You have to challenge the working class to, uh, to also to respect what they have to, to respect them, to win their respect, and then to, uh, when you win, win someone respect, then they're prepared to listen to you. But if you're not prepared to listen to them, then what do you expect is going to happen to you? Mm -hmm. So I think that the, the, the communists in the, in the 1930s, because they were heavily involved in the whole uh, struggles around uh, the um, evictions, the tenements, uh, around the whole land questions, they, they, they grew, they grew in, 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 in influence. Then um, Spain happened, uh, the Republican Congress split. Uh, for very, but I think somewhat, somewhat confusing ideas at the time. But uh, inevitable, uh, there was the split between those who were looking for a workers' republic and those who were fighting for what they saw was a, a workers' and small farmers' republic. And these were all points of theory, points of difference. But 
whether they wanted it a complete bust up is another matter. Mm. That's history. Uh, but then, uh, not long was Conley House burned at that time, but also there were a couple, number of small shops of women who ran little shops or, uh, um, up around by Parnell Street who were burned out as well, uh, ransacked because of the selling uh, materials about Soviet Russia. Uh, so within, behind all this was the actual fact it was a spillover from global politics. It was the, the rise of the Bolsheviks, the rise of the growth of, uh, of, the, of the workers' movement, the left radical workers' movement across Europe, across the world actually, because that was the time the common turn would have been building strong links, uh, building communist radical revolutionary organizations in the colonies. So therefore, it was a, the, the Bolshevik Revolution, we look, now, we look at now, I think we wouldn't, we'd have to understand, understand the ferment that mm -hmm. was taking place. Um, capitalism was in massive crisis in the 1930s, 19, late 20s, early 30s. You had this mass movement of, uh, of revolutionary workers' organizations, both in Europe and across the world. The whole struggle, pressure upon the empires, the French Empire, the British Empire, the, the Dutch, the Germans, the whole, all were under pressure. Uh, from uh, um, the movements of national liberation, national freedom. And so therefore, a lot of you are sitting, if you are sitting in Washington and London, you're thinking, holy Jesus, what is, we're going to lose the lot, we're going to lose the lot. And uh, so therefore, they intensified the ideological struggle and, um, and that's where it came out of. And so the Ireland in the 1930s was a combination of both external anti-communism and internal, mm. uh, internal weakness of Irish capitalism, coupled with this whole... Uh, Challenge that was emerging to 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 uh, colonialism and to imperialism, and then so you had so you had that mirror a rise of the rise of the left, and then also the rise of the right. So the right, go back to the point you're making. The right today, they're not challenging capitalism. They don't challenge capitalism. Mm. They're not offering a alternative to capitalism. Yes. They're just saying basically they are they're, they are trying to capture the anger of people towards the workings out of capitalism. The policies of capital, they're, they're, they're trying to capture people's anger about uh, the collapsing health services, the shambles that is a health services here. They're capturing that anger. They're not saying, well, we are offering a public health, a free public health service. They don't yes. say that. Yes. They just say, you're angry. Yes, be angry. You're right. They send people up at the top. But they're not saying, well, the reasons why they people at the top, this is the policy they're pursued. And I think that's where they, they're looking at it. They try to capture anger, but anger is a genuine human emotion. It's not a political strategy. Mm -hmm. And that is where they, they, the right to push that position of capturing people's anger, people's frustrations, people's alienation. Capturing it in a way, then to, in a way to, that steers them away from challenging who is the real problem here? What is the real problem? Who is the real enemy? Who has actually created these conditions for which you're suffering from? And that is where the role of the left, that has always been, been the role of the right is to challenge the people's anger in a way that does not challenge the system, deflects them away from challenging the system. So that's true. We're no, it's no different than it was in the 30s, but it is that role to play. They, they're right, are not challenging the system. They're not challenging the very material basis of it. All they're doing is basically capturing the anger and turning it in a different direction. There were certainly demoralising effects in, in the end of the 30s. I mean, the fatalities that the Irish lads endured in Spain were absolutely enormous. I think around something like 33% of the Irish lads in the brigades were, were killed, and I mean, some of the, the great young potential uh, of that generation, particularly people like, like Charlie Donnelly and others, lost in the battlefields of Spain. Do you think that was, I mean, you would have been growing up on the left at a time when veterans of that struggle were, were still present, people like Mick O'Reardon, mm. people like Bob Doyle, who, who kept faith. Um, but it's fair to say, rebuilding the communist movement post-Spanish Civil War that, was a, a long struggle. It's a big, it is, a, it is still a, a point of, I'm not saying uh, we are very, very proud of what these, uh, of the history 
of the communists in Ireland. Uh, we also be also acknowledge that, like everything else, we can reflect back and say what might have been, mm. what might have been. Uh, but that's uh, that would to the way we could say if it would have been better if they had stayed in Ireland and probably could contribute to the battle here. Because um, I do think there's some brilliant brains uh, went to Spain and never come home. I think that people who made a huge contribution to the struggles in the 1920s and the 1930s. Um, people very brave and courageous people, very and people who are thinking, people who got the had the capacity to lead working people who were, were from the working class. Um, but then that would take away from them that they're sacrificed. Then I would be demeaning their sacrifice, which I we wouldn't do. We wouldn't do. Uh, but um, but it's important that we do say that you know, we lost uh, not long, We lost uh, a lot of good people. The revolutionary movement in Ireland lost a lot of good people. Uh, you can evaluate. Was the sacrifice, uh, was it worth that sacrifice? And then it gets, uh, if I was coldly and calmly looking at it and say, no, it wasn't, but I can't do that. Again, all, all I can say is that those people made that decision, I defend that decision. Do you think it was a great source of, um, not just pride, but it showed what could be done to, to younger communists in the, in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, to be sitting in a room with someone like Mick O'Reardon uh, Absolutely, because they were, they were, because uh, whenever people really, whenever people, Mick O'Reardon was maybe not known about it, but Mick O'Reardon was very committed to peace. Yeah. And uh, very, very committed to peace. And we in the 1950s, uh, whenever they were trying to organize the World Peace Council, had had a, 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 a World Peace Petition for Peace against nuclear bombs. Um, people like, they'd organize a, an event up at Christchurch and Luke Kelly singing on the back of a lorry was attacked. You know, all they were doing was campaigning for peace, and they come under huge attacks for that whole, for, for time to uh, organize a support for the, the, the World Peace Council's uh, petition for peace. Uh, so, but Mick O'Reilly said, well, only if you, when you've gone through the battle, yes. do you really understand the importance of peace? And to, that was Mick's view, that he had gone through the Battle of Spain. He'd seen so many people die. He saw the destruction, the human misery that was left behind. He saw it and definitely knew that peace was extremely important to people, extremely important for human development. But to a degree, wars were, is, were the, forces of the forces of imperialism wish to stop. When they've lost the political argument, they resort to violence to, uh, to, to prevent anything changing. So the peace is extremely important in that, in, that, in that sense. So you had people like that whenever we were involved in the peace, post, peace struggles in the 1950s, the global against the nuclear war, against the band of bomb, all those type of demonstrations. That flowed then into the 19, late 60s, early 70s, into the anti-Vietnam War demonstrations, uh, the anti-apartheid demonstrations, the Communist Party were instrumental uh, in, in, in founding the, the Vietnam Vietnam War, anti-Vietnam War. <laughs> there was three people, that, uh, it was Pat O'Donnell, Mick O'Reardon and um, uh, Tom Barry, I think were, uh, I think it might have been Tom Barry uh, was involved. It's only three of them were involved and, and it turned into a mass movement of people against the war. So it, it, all things are possible. All things are possible. It's about how you engage with people. Uh, and the same with the anti-apartheid movement started a handful of people. It turned into a movement which basically forced the Irish government to, um, to bring about uh, a ban on importation of, of South African goods, which also led to a huge conflict for the, Euro the European Union and all those type of things. So it contributed, a small little campaign in Ireland contributed to the destruction of one of the most brutal regimes in the, in the 20th century history. So I think we... These, yeah, I don't think you judge an organisation by its size, but you judge it by, by, its, by, yeah, by, by its capacity to influence and shape and develop politics. 
and that is where the, the Communist Party is down at. So whenever we set up the bookshops in, in the 1934, 35, been attacked, that you can always see that um, the ruling class sees the importance of education. They see it, and that's why they control it. That's why they shape it. Therefore, if we want to, if the left wants to really move, therefore it needs to have its own forms of education. It needs to have its own places where people will come to get alternative information. And that, to a degree, what the, whenever we found it in the late 40s, early 50s, the, the New Books. New Books was the forerunner to Connolly Books. That was established by people like Sean Nolan, um, who was a, who was a founder member of the Communist Party. He was a member of the first Communist Party. Uh, Sean Nolan, I remember him telling me about he, he remember he was, uh, he said he was coming around by Marlborough Street and uh, come around the corner and there he said this there was a meeting, public meeting going on there was James Connolly speaking. Extraordinary. So, <laughs> so he had this, once again, this red thread yes. flows through the political struggles both individually and also organisationally flows through uh, the links with the Communist Party to the hist historical roots of the working class movement. So Johnny Nolan established the, uh, the, the new books along with people like Geoffrey uh, Palmer um, and he would have been, they would have been key people and I, I knew both those men, uh, you never say you know, people well. I knew them, Yeah. Uh, I had a beer with them, sat at meetings with them. Uh, therefore, I, uh, some understanding of what they, were, what they went through when they spoke about the history of, of what they went through and how, what they did and why they did it. And uh, so you listen to people like uh, Sean Nolan. And Sean was a very sm small man, uh, quintessential dub. He was a very, but an extremely well-read man, extremely well-read. Uh, and he would be very much of that, but a very silent character. He wasn't to the fore in uh, oral speeches and writing things, but when Sean, when he wrote, you, you read it. Yes. When he spoke at meetings, you listened. Because that, because they had, to the degree, they'd earned the right to be heard. Absolutely. Yeah. So, when you had those people involved, then you did learn from you people like people who come into the shop. Anytime, the, whenever a lot of the brigaders who came back from Spain to come back to Ireland, they found it was a very, very cold place. Therefore, men had to re-emigrate again, went to England to find, uh, find work because of the combination of the economic crisis, but also then with the emergence of the war, there was more work going in Britain. So a lot of men went to England and a lot of them never came back, but they come back on their holidays and the first port of call would always be new books. The first port, before they even went to visit their families, they say, they get off the boat in Dunleary or down at the docks and they'd come up to, to New Books and that would be their first port of call. And the same thing with uh, ones who went to America. When they, come back to, when they come back to Ireland, their first port of call would be into New Books. Uh, and that's where they pick up papers, they pick up magazines and stuff like that, and then they go off to meet the family. And uh, I was part of, whenever I got to start to work in the bookshop, my job was to, uh, was to dispatch uh, the Irish socialist uh, around the country, send it around individuals over to Britain, to America. So therefore I knew where I could tell by the names, John Joe High. Where does John Joe High isn't from, isn't from uh, Guatemala. John Joe High is from Ireland and where is he from Mayo. Um, so he went over there, he was, the, he was one of the ones who were Republicans who were defeated. Uh, and was marginalised because remember that uh, in in uh, the uh, the that alone was the oath of allegiance to the to the to the British 
uh, the British state. Uh, people had to say how people had the uh, the establishment of the free state. There's also an oath of allegiance to the free state. So you had an awful lot of Republicans who couldn't either give an oath of allegiance to the British state and wouldn't give an oath of allegiance to the free state. And they were stuck in all jobs, where the county council jobs or teaching jobs. So therefore they were double bound, and therefore many of them were forced out for economic and political reasons. But they would, when you're seeing them and send them, when you're sending them, when I'd be posting the socials, Irish socials, they could see exactly where they were going and who they were, where you could tell by their name. So these are the sort of the, and also people down the country, be wanting, they want to be magazines about the Soviet Union, about uh, the German Democratic Republic or East Germany, things they got or going on, what was going on in South Africa, things, the books, the materials they couldn't get anywhere else. They kindly, new books would be the focal point for that. And new, new books was violently attacked in, in the 50s, I think, during, during Hungary, and, and not unlike what happened on Great Strand Street. The, the, the hostility, mm -hmm. the reason for the hostility had changed. It wasn't yep. Spain or Mexico anymore, but there, there was perhaps as much hostility in, in the 50s. Oh, yeah, there was. It was that was the whole uh, um, advent of the, that was that more, how would you say, uh, intense ideological struggle around the, around the, the, uh, the Cold War. Uh, because once again, the, with the the ending of the Second World War, the two degree, the Bolshevik Revolution uh, after the First World War and the emergence of the workers' movement, of radical revolution, workers' movement across across Europe, this fracture in the workers' movement from social democracy who were looking to reforms within capitalism to those who are revolutionary forces who want to overthrow capitalism. And that shifted the balance of forces inside the labour movement, the growth of what they would call the Bolshevism, across the workers' movement across Europe, and then also the growth of the influence of the Soviet Union and Bolshevism among the oppressed masses of the world and under colonial domination. There was a shift in dynamic and a shift in the balance of forces globally at that time. Then, when the Second World War and the defeat of fascism, there was a continued development and shift in the balance of forces uh, to the left, uh, to the Bolshevik tradition um, and the growth of the Soviet Union. So therefore, there was more than any more intensified ideological struggle yes. uh, against socialism, against communism. And uh, that reflected in, in a whole period and the whole uh, question of 1956 and Hungary and what took place and all that. Uh, I, don't, I don't have a problem if, in, the, in the, uh, Hungary in 1956. I mean, as far as, I, as, far as I'm concerned, it was a counter-revolution and the, the United Front of Socialism had to be defended and it was necessary to defend it. And therefore, I think these are the historic, history doesn't give you the, how you say, the best conditions. All you can do is you yes. struggle in the conditions which you find yourself in. And therefore you find you struggle in those conditions, you don't find ideal conditions. These are the conditions you find them, these are the real material struggles, these are the real material balance of forces, and you deal with them as they are. Not what you'd like them to be, or you yeah. wish them to be, you deal them as they are. Therefore, Hungary in 1956 was a struggle to defend the socialist camp, a very weak and very uh, marginalized socialist camp, had to be defended, and I would support that. Mick O'Reilly talks about yeah. that in his memoir, uh, that kind of time and, and how it was amazing that something that happened so far away could lead to such vicious political debate and you know, branches of the party in places like Crumlin and during the, like in the heart of Dublin. Uh, but like the story of CPI isn't just a story of things like Hungary 56. Mm. There was a very active involvement in the real issues on the ground. Here, this was well, a party that was as much about well, very much so, very much so. Dublin, uh, you, will, uh, you go back and uh, the in the fifties, would have been the huge unemployed struggles. Mm. Uh, the National Unemployed Organisation of the Unemployed uh, would have very much would have been organising thousands. They would have called thousands of people onto the streets. They, they managed to get even even at the height. That's why, to a degree, there's a there's a one level. There's a very superficial view of anti-communism. Uh, 
and sort of the Cold War and impact. Um, at the same time as, as people, as a handful of individuals may have ransacked new books, mm. uh, whenever the Archbishop of Dublin said nobody should turn up for the Hungary Ireland match, well, the place was packed. Now, if people said, that, fuck off, not interested. We're going to see Ireland play in Hungary. You're not going to tell us what to do. Uh, whereas a handful of people went in and burned Connolly books, or new, new books. And, and the same thing in the in the in the nineteen in the fifties, whenever Jack uh, Murphy was a was a elected to the Dáil as an unemployed candidate, um, the, all of the all of the organising committee were all communists, all communists, all all building workers and others who were being uh, let go because of the building industry collapsed in the slump, but they were known they were known around the city, um, but the communists believed that the best thing to do at that time was to get someone from the unemployed movement elected to the Dáil. Yes. And so they stood back. You can say in hindsight, that wasn't probably a good idea. It wasn't a good idea. Uh, but that's where they made a decision call because of the intensity of that. But if you look at it, the intensity of the ideological struggle against them, against the unemployed camp, saying, you're only a communist front. Yeah. And what did people do? They say, I'm voting Jack Murray. Jack, vote, 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 vote. They voted him into the door. In other words, at one level, the establishment were saying, don't vote for these people. On the other hand, people were saying, Maybe we will. <laughs> we bloody well will. And the reputation of the party and things like the Housing Action Committee comes to mind as well, that it was regarded as a very honest honest broker in the sense that it wasn't fighting electoral battles in the same way as most parties on the left were. No, no and, that's, and that was the whole thing about it. So definitely you had to have that, people had that sort of approach. Uh, there's the people in their own heads separated, separated what the things, and they separated their, their belief and to the, is the abuse of people's sincerely held religious views has been the problem. And some people, are, I don't have a problem with people's... The Communist Party never discusses religion. As, for as long as I've been, I've been a member of since 1974, you know, we've never had a discussion about people's religious beliefs. It doesn't enter the discussion. It has never... We will talk about philosophy, we'll talk about religion as a set of values and views and stuff like that. But whether people believe in God or not, no one has ever asked. No one has ever asked whether they believe in God or not, don't believe in God. Michael Reardon, who will be the, the betonoir of, of the, the, the big red, red Reardon, his wife, Kay Reardon, was a very militant communist. But she was a very, very devout Catholic. Mm. It was never a question, it was never a question come into, come into, uh, to be asked. She was voted to positions because she was a good, sincere, hard-working, militant communist. And a very well, very well-read woman. So it was never a big problem for us to have about religion. It still isn't. It's never discussed. Uh, but in the 1950s, that was a, so that's manipulation and manoeuvring of people's sincerely held views for, uh, by charlatans, simply by charlatans. Uh, and, uh, and now, in the, in the light of history, we can see yeah. they were complete charlatans. It was an organization which was the Catholic Church and its institutions, the, uh, this, the, the, the industrial schools or the, the modern child home, they were institutions of repression. They were about repressing the working class. They were about controlling the working class, about disciplining the working class. And it's, that is missing from all the debates about the mother and child's home or, or the, um, the industrial schools. It was, they were mechanisms for disciplining the working class, driving the working class, do as you're told, keep in your box and say nothing. And that is what is, what is missing from this whole debate. And if you read newspapers like the Catholic Standard, uh, now in the archives, historians look at these papers and think, oh my God, this is wild. Mm -hmm. But there's a reason they devoted so much time mm. to communism mm. because they were genuinely fearful. Absolutely. Uh, office. Yeah. yeah, very, very, very much so. And that, and that, comes, out, and that comes across as a, just looking on the office upstairs. Uh, <laughs> we have it up there as a, uh, as a, as a Catholic standard. 
And uh, the Catholic Standard, way back in the 50s, used to carry what up with one in particular office in the office, they have a front page of the Catholic Standard and all the photographs of all the Communist Party members, not all of them, but Kiev, they saw as leading Communist Party members, their photographs beside them where they lived and where they worked. Where they lived and where they worked. So they are informing, I mean, thousands of people were getting, we had no choice, you got the, the damn thing was stuffed your hands when you went to church. But they were telling people exactly, These are, this is the known communist, this is where they live, this is where they work. Right. And so that was, that was their constant reframe in the 50s. But that didn't even stop me. Whenever the Communist Party comrades in, uh, in Chikor set up, Bali, Lower Bali Firma set up the, the Bali, Firma, Bali Firma in Chikor co-op, food co-op, it was about meeting the needs of people who couldn't afford to, to pay the, sh the prices in the shops and stuff like that. It come under attack. The very, very fact you want to put forward a cooperative that provided food at a rate that people could actually afford mm. to feed their kids and feed their families on, come under attack, sustained attack. Uh, but that was also because, of, not just because of religion, because also the local shopkeepers and stuff, they got one or two pleased later there's going to be a comp competition mm -hmm. coming from a co-op. So therefore, it was all like all these things, there's a, an alliance of interest I think one of the interesting scenes in that uh, uh, Jimmy's Hall, uh, Jimmy, Jimmy Gralton, and there's a scene in the film about uh, where they were hunting down Jim Gralton across Leitrim, and there's a scene in the film where the local bishop, uh, the Garda, and the local businessmen were talking about how do we get rid of this, this uh, undesirable person called Jim Gralton. But what was interesting was the, the nexus of power. The local power was the church, the guard, and the local politician businessmen mm. came together. They are the ones who decided who was good and who was bad, who was deserving and who was undeserving. And the same thing whenever the Catholic Church controlled all these things, they defined as there are poor and then there are deserving poor. And if there's deserving poor, is there not then undeserving poor? <laughs> yes. So who is the undeserving poor? Yeah. The poor who don't behave themselves, yes. who don't toe the line. So the same thing, that goes on, that was, goes back to the people who were on the unemployed struggles and stuff like that. There's the same, the same struggle, people saying, uh, we don't particularly care what you think. Mm. This person would do that. And what, whenever Murphy was elected to the Dáil, then it became the target from the pressure from the bishops and stuff like that. And eventually he left the Dáil and went to Canada. Uh, so these are all, so the struggles around the unemployment in the 50s, the struggle, that was also at the same time that New Books was there, New Books was, was carried the stock, carried books about the Soviet Union, the new world that was emerging, the whole national liberation struggle, carrying information about the war in, in, um, in Algeria and the anti-colonial struggles. Because yeah, who would who'd, who'd be interested in the anti-colonial struggles? Radical Republican elements. Does it say anything about the changing politi political atmosphere in Ireland as the 20th century went on that new books could in time become Connolly books? <laughs> well, actually, we took this, uh, the, it was, um, but the whole, uh, I, I, would, I, use a, I, I would use terms, and the Communist Party would use terms, we don't use about the, uh, the collapse of socialism. Uh, we would use the term the victory of counter-revolution. Uh, the victory of counter-revolution in, in the late and mid-80s in Eastern Europe. Um, uh, we've seen that as a, as a huge uh, disaster, as a huge disaster uh, for, for uh, human advance. Um, and we look at it now today, the impact of the counter-revolution and the defeat of the Soviet Union. Um, that the Soviet, we, viewed, we have always viewed that socialism in the Soviet Union in particular uh, was, uh, how to say, a great bulwark mm. 
a great bulwark against imperialism, a great bulwark against reaction. It was also a benchmark. A, a benchmark. bargaining tool yeah, for, yeah, for, yeah. Work, for working class. Working class, yeah. It was the benchmark. Um, the advances made by working people in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, the capitalist class in Europe, Western Europe had to say, well, look, if they've got maternity leave, they've got this rights and those rights, and workers are this and workers are that, we have to match them. We have to match them. And you can see with the victory of the counter-revolution in Eastern Europe, how our, how our rights have become steamrolled back, have been driven back and driven back and driven back. Because why? There is no bulwark. There is no benchmark from which they, they have to stand. They say they have defeated us. They have defeated us. That's the way they look at it. That's the way they, they think. We've defeated you. Therefore, we don't have to compromise with you anymore. We don't have to give you anything. And that has shown that we, the things we believe we had permanently were not permanent. They're only permanent so far as you can defend them, that you can actually stand up and fight to hold on to them. And that is why they, it was important for the Soviet Union to exist. It was important for Eastern Europe to exist, because that was the basis on which the bosses of the Western Europe and globally had to say, we have to compromise. We have to compromise, because if we don't compromise, them bloody commies are going to take over and take us all off us. Therefore, we'll give a little to keep the whole lot, to keep as much as possible. Now they say, we don't give you anything, we we'll keep the whole lot. And that's where we have to, that's where we need to look at, understand the victory of the counter-revolution and its impact. There's the great story of, I think it was Mick O'Reardon raising, raising the red flag uh, on, on Connolly Books in the aftermath of, of the wall, I think, coming down. Uh, for you at that time and for other people in, in the party, it must have been a moment of great personal uh, a challenge, I suppose, to your, to your worldview. To, to, it to it was of, indeed. Uh, without a doubt, um, it, I mean, the Communist Party has always been... Uh, it's, how to say it, it's, in relative speak, in relative terms, I suppose it was a small political organisation. It was always uh, under the cush uh, from the state and from the ideological forces of the state, the, the, uh, the church and various other things. It was always under the cush, never becoming very difficult. Uh, so whenever the whole, um, with the opening up in the late 60s and the sort of advancement or the whole sort of development of education, uh, a bit more economic and development, um, also a floor, more greater flow of ideas into the country. You can see the development of Laird, the Connolly movement emerged in the late 1965, the growth of new politics, the growth of anti-war struggles mm. around the Vietnam War. There was a change took place and also the impact in the North about the whole civil rights movement and the, that took place and that would come out of, the, I'd come out of a conference in Belfast in 1962 organised by the Betty Sinclair and the Belfast Trades Council, remember the Communist Party, the Communists involved in the drew that, tried to draw on the experience of international struggles around civil rights, around the, because we saw that the, the Achilles heel of unionism was the lack of democracy, the denial of democracy. Was the, was the, it was a sectarian entity created for sectarian reasons and sustained by sectarianism and repression. And to a degree, it still is the same today. It hasn't changed much. Uh, but we saw, therefore, how do you dismantle that infrastructure of control and the infrastructure of control was repression and discrimination and therefore if you break those instruments of control you then basically begin to shift the relationship or balance of power within society and that's what we moved about the question of the of the of the civil rights movement it was about breaking the mechanisms of control which is a gerrymandering of politics gerrymandering of housing gerrymandering of local local democracy the the sort of discrimination, mass discrimination in, 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 uh, in employment and things like that. So these were the targets, and it did. It broke the back of unionism. It weakened the basis of imperialism in, in the North, and that's why they, the, the British abandoned unionism and took control directly themselves. Then you saw the mechanisms of control re-emerge with the absolute control by the 
by the British state over loyalist paramilitaries. I don't use the term collusion. Collusion would imply parity. It was not parity. It was basically these were organisations which were run and controlled and directed by the British state. And the killings supposedly took place on the collusion were not. They were state-directed killings. State-directed killings to remove political opponents. And that's what, that is what it is. And so the same thing applied in the 1960s, the development of the South, the whole uh, Dublin's, the Dublin Housing Action Committee. There's a whole struggle again. Housing has always been a big problem in this country because yes. basically it's always been controlled by, 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 by landlords. We've, uh, we've been plagued by both British landlords and the native Gombean landlord. Our people have been, have been uh, plagued by these uh, parasitic elements for centuries. Uh, the, the, the absentee landlords of, of uh, the British and now the Gombean landlords and, uh, who've populated the cities, they have the one. And now we've got return of the absentee landlord with the vulture capitalists and the mm. uh, funds coming in from New York or uh, Germany or whatever else or London buying up large tracts of property. These are the parasitic elements. These are the new absentee landlords. And we have to look at those approaches and learn the lessons of history. What do you deal with these people? So in the 1960s and 70s, that was a change. And so whenever the, uh, the counter-revolution won in, in, uh, out in, in, in the late mid-80s, mid uh, we had, <clears throat> of course, there was a rethink took place. And uh, we also sort of, uh, the building here was in, uh, we used to be, we have moved around a number of places, so say from the late 1930s, the mid-30s were in Strand Street then, uh, the, the party went into all types of things, had found difficulty getting place. And then in the late 40s, early 50s, we got a small little bookshop in Pier, in Pier Street, what is now the old, what is now the, uh, the fire brigade uh, there. Uh, then in the mid to early 60s, uh, the corporation CPO'd it because they were going to build an extension to the fire, the fire station. It took them nearly 40 years to build the extension. <laughs> so you have to ask the question, why, why did the CPO it in the first place? All that was to basically shut it down. Yeah. They tried then, we moved from, from, uh, from Pier Street around to Parliament Street. Uh, just there now, there's a, uh, and a, there's a Greek restaurant in it now. We have a small little bookshop there. Uh, we, our offices <coughs> at the time were in uh, Pembroke Lane. It's off Pembroke Street. It's a small little lane. Uh, it was a, an old stables that we had. So that, was we, uh, that was the first meeting I ever, place I ever went for meetings. Uh, that was the party met there from the late 50s onwards, uh, 40s onwards. There was an old stables at the back of a big house on, 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 in, in Pembroke Lane. Um, and there was a downstairs, there was a, uh, we used to have the printing press there. That wasn't working whenever I joined the party. Uh, but upstairs was meeting rooms and McAreer had an office on the ground floor and a good, lovely little meeting room upstairs. Uh, our paper was published, uh, the, the Irish Social was published in, I think it was Dorset Press up on, up on um, Hill Street. Uh, many times the paper had been banned on the Coercion Acts and various things and we had to get the paper printed in, in Scotland and brought in. Sure. Uh, so there's always been these uh, complications and difficulties uh, and uh, whenever the printer in Dorset Press, he was trying to, when he started to print it, he, he went to the priest to look for, uh, to say that he was going to print the Communist Party paper um, and he wanted to know what should you do about it and he's, the priest said to him, well, what, uh, if you didn't print it, what would be the impact? He said, well, I've got, um, we employ so many people and it does an impact upon jobs. When the priest said, well, go ahead and do it. Because... Uh, because there's going to be lots of jobs. So even the priests were, <laughs> even they were, not all of them, not all of them, as I say, it was, uh, these are all complexities of questions, complexities of questions. And so they printed the paper. <clears throat> so the party had an office, old offices around in, in, Parna, around in uh, Pembroke Lane. 
And that's where the Connie movement was uh, a time when the Connie movement in the 1960s and 70s, the Connie movement, we were all based there. Uh, that's where we, the demonstrations, the posters were made, uh, silk screens, the, the, the floor would be covered in, from this uh, paper being drying, the, pink, the ink from the silk screens would be drying for the posters before they go up in the streets. The, an old Gestetner machine about uh, turning out the leaflets and stuff like that. That was all there. And then in the mid 1975 uh, 76, they sold the uh, this old Pembroke Lane, and uh, we bought this building. This was a, this was, <coughs> it's a, it's a famous, it's an, it's an interesting building in the sense it's known as a Dutch Billy. It's probably it could be declared a national monument uh, uh, because it's so old. And um, was uh, uh, John Rogers was part of this whole development, and uh, we bought this uh, building from that uh, from the sale of uh, Pembroke Lane. It wasn't Russian gold. It was basically born out of that, and all this comes out of it all comes out of. Money, uh, money from collected by working people. We didn't get money from any. We don't. We don't have any rich benefactors. There are not yeah. too many people, rich people, running around throwing throw money at communists. This came out of people who hadn't got a national, uh, national trousers, uh, had hardly enough money to feed their families. But they had, if they had a few bob extra, they would give it to the communist party. They would give it to, to make sure the paper came out. They would give it to make sure the leaves were done. I mean, they would give it to make sure the premises and the bookshop was maintained. The perception people have of this uh, area now is, is, you know, it's coloured by what Temple Bar has become in recent yeah. decades. The Temple Bar, the Commons Party moved into, was a very, very different place. It was quite Absolute. dilapidated, run down. It was. It was originally originally uh, CIE. Doesn't uh, people this gentleman? I, I, you all grew up in terms of people knew what CIE was. CIE was the old the bus company. Uh, now it's been fractured into other, we'll call a whole lots of other things, but it was, it was CIA had bought a lot of this property around here because they were going to build a bus station. And it's, it was typical of the establishment of this society. Basically, they really have no idea of actually how to create a human uh, development, economic and social. It's not about enhancing the human being. It's about, can you make a profit out of it? Is, does, is it getting in the way of making a profit? If it is getting in the way of making knock it down, bulldoze it, do it, smash it a bit, it doesn't matter to them, as long as we call it, they, they call it progress as if making more money. It's not, it's not how we would define progress by any shape of the imagination. So they had gone, were going to build a bus station. Uh, then eventually Charlie Hoy and his uh, grandiose uh, inner thoughts, he decided, no, we'll turn it into the uh, cultural centre. And as, per typi as typical, because it hasn't changed then, because uh, during the la after the last recession, uh, if you remember all the big debates about the Irish diaspora and what they could do in 19 2000 2010, 2012, oh, we've got a great commodity, we can sell Irish culture. Now, to, to them, culture is purely a commodity to be bought and sold. If it doesn't make a profit, then bugger's not worth a damn. Um, so they were sort of, they were going to turn into the cultural quarter. And what they mean by cultural quarter is a, it's a wall to wall pubs and then fleece the tourists. And that's exactly what it turned into be, uh, as but, but a wall to wall else, pubs and fleecing. Everything else that was kind of progressive <laughs> in the Temple Bar at that time, you know, the Hirschfeld Centre, all that mm. stuff, is gone without yes. trace. It's kind, of, it's kind of mad to me that. The, the Communist Party have managed to hold on. Yeah, it was, a, it was a place full of small little businesses. Uh, young people, uh, because their old buildings were empty, took them over and set up uh, little clothes shops and all types of things. Then you had the Dublin Resort Centre, uh, a cooperative co uh, restaurant, cafe, bookshop, printing place. It was, oh, it was, a, it was a hive of, of, of activity. You could vaguely call it left because basically it was anti-establishment. It was anti-establishment and was there. And so basically, when they took it over, then it became a, a scramble for property. So all types of shady deals done, property moved hands overnight, in between hands, all over the place. You wouldn't know where it went. To. And we ended up what we have today. 
a glorified knock and shop full of pubs very, <laughs> with very expensive drinking. Very expensive drink. So you've got, so you have all this, so you have all this, and that's what they call culture. That's what they call culture. So it's, uh, like and the fleece. Books, in, maybe the project. Uh, yeah, yeah, and yeah, a few yeah, things remain. A few, few things remain, because that's what they couldn't get their hands on. Because they couldn't get their hands on it, because the Communist Party owned this building. The project then at that time was run by fairly radical uh, artists and stuff like that, so they didn't buy into all that nonsense. And then you had artist studios around the place, and the artists tend to be people who don't like being told what to do yeah. and, and the establishment. So they managed to hold on to bits and pieces of it here and there around the place. Uh, but the Communist Party, we had this building, in, and then in 1976, and it was. Uh, it was Next door was empty. It was a derelict site. It had collapsed. Behind us was empty. We used to, can't remember, should I say it now? We used to run a shabeen uh, here in this building. <laughs> we were sitting in the new theatre of the shabeen. Uh, we raised quite a few. I mean, that was the, that was the young communist, young, the, the younger communist and the kind of youth movement, because at that time we were... Was that bad Boris, as it was known as colloquially? Uh, uh, it was, uh, I have. Uh, <laughs> well, we, we had a good, actually, it was, uh, at the time, uh, we used to run it on a Friday and Saturday night. Uh, we had the Club Sandino um, and uh, play uh, world music, but people didn't know what world music was. Yeah. <laughs> But they come in here on a Friday night or Saturday night, and uh, we would have a refreshments could be availed of, and um, there'd be dancing, uh, people dancing away at two or three in the morning, and people used to arrive by taxi, and we think, oh, like, then the guards raided, and we constantly, we sort of became it's too difficult to raise, we were losing more money sort of in stolen, and the guards stealing our beer than we were trying to sell the beer. <laughs> but we, in the process of all that, we raised thousands and thousands of euros for. Uh, for the Sandinistas, for Sandinistas, for funding schools in, in Nicaragua. The, and we also sent uh, young people to Nicaragua to help pick the coffee, uh, as part of the coffee brigades. Uh, so that all helped, went through that whole process. So it also helped sustain the Communist Party because we had made money and we were able to get uh, buy things, which we, did, we hadn't got the money to. And then when the, when the whole counter-revolution took place in the mid-'80s, um, the, uh, the Soviet Union ceased, therefore, Books coming out of the Soviet Union ceased. Right, yeah. P political uh, Progress Publishers, which was one of the biggest pub publishing houses in the world, was, produced lots of political literature, economic and social and political and cultural literature, which reflected both the Soviet Union, but also the global struggles against imperialism. They ceased. They ceased. So therefore, uh, we made a decision that we would uh, rename it, because one of the other traditions of the communist movement and, and, and new books uh, was that we kept Connolly's writings in, publish, in, in print. Right from, right from the early 1920s onwards, uh, we've always kept Connolly's writings, his main writings, Labour and Irish history, the reconquest of Ireland, and Labour and Irish religion. Um, uh, and those key, key, print, key writings were always kept in print. And uh, so we thought the logical thing to do was to call it Connolly Books because it was identified with that long tradition of keeping yes. Connolly's writings. Whenever the Labour movement didn't want to know James Connolly, the Republican movement didn't want to know James Connolly, we said, well, so we kept Connolly's names. We took the name Connolly Books as a continuum of new books, and that is where, that's where the name came from. In 1989, 1990, we refurbished the shop and renamed the shop uh, Connolly books. There's a kind of irony in this, in the sense that the uh, the vision of Temple Bar, as Hawkey said, was mm. that it was going to be cultural. Now it mm. didn't become a cultural quarter, but mm. that was the vision. But ironically, one of the last places where there is culture in it is something they couldn't get rid of, which mm. is Connolly books. You can yeah. walk in here during the week, and there's Irish language classes on. Uh, you know, there's independent poets and, and the like. You can you can purchase their books here. 
uh, it's a bastion of culture in an area that seems to be totally devoid of culture now. Yeah, and one of the one of the most whenever we uh, whenever we were uh, the building wasn't uh, needed to get funding, we couldn't really get funding for anywhere. And uh, the building needed a lot of repair. Uh, that's whenever we approached um, Mick Wallace, and uh, Mick Wallace. <coughs> uh, reason how we got involved with Mick Wallace was we, we were we, uh, I was crossing over um, the Millennium Bridge, the, the footbridge, across the river onto the north side, and I just saw this huge big banner hanging down in front of this building, and it said "No Blood for Oil." And uh, I was thinking, hmm, that's an interesting one. And then it appeared in the papers that the, the city council wanted to close, wanted to take the banner down. He was all, so I made the connection with Mick Wallace. So I went over and I sort of looking for Mick Wallace, and he says, "I'm Mick Wallace." And so I says, I'm, "I'm looking to see what you're interested in the building." And we have a building across the road. And he said, "Okay, I'll come across." So coming up one Monday, he come over. We went up to the little office upstairs, still there, <coughs> and we sat sat down and we says, uh, oh, "Well, can we have?" Uh, I says. This is our building. Um, we don't have the money to develop it, uh, but we're interested in doing a deal. And he said, what are you looking for? And I said, we're looking for this, this, and this. Uh, and he said, right, let me think about that. And uh, a few days later, he rings up and he says, can we meet up? And I said, yeah, of course we can. So he come back and he says, we can give you this, this, and this, but I can't give you that because there wouldn't be enough to sustain it. I, so I says right. Uh, that's because I'd given the authority. I'd been given the authority by the area committee to uh, to uh, make a deal. So we shook hands. One of the things was that the the old back hall would be turned into a theatre, uh, a proper theatre, and that's what you have today. Is the new theatre is a proper uh, tiered seating. It's a theatre which is about encouraging uh, young actors, new Irish writing, giving space to artists. Uh, to be able to express themselves, new uh, young to give young writers an opportunity to have to see their work uh, put on stage. Uh, but I mean, you have to be a thousand years old before you can get anything put on stage in Ireland, because uh, you have unless you're part of the clique and part of the the establishment, you don't get anything published, you don't get anything put on, because uh, mm -hmm. you're not within the circle. There's golden circles, and there's golden circles within the golden circles, mm -hmm. and the circles within uh, culture, nothing within capitalism is allowed to free flow. Whether it be ideas, cultural values, none of these things are free flow. They're all controlled. They're all sort of shaped and molded to meet the establishment's needs. And to a degree, that what the new theatre was to create a space where people could actually put on stuff and talk about themselves and see their own world experience reflected back, reflected off the stage. Um, to a degree, that's why amateur theatre groups use it. Um, all types of people use it, uh, but it's run. It's independent from the Communist Party. It's not. We don't run it. We don't control it. Uh, it's independent board of directors and stuff like that. And does its own thing. Uh, so that's where it's. Uh, so that's when the nature of the theatre was about that. That's what we wanted to do. Uh, create a space, particularly for radical working class culture to be expressed, Excellent. to be exp get expression, uh, and that is still our core value. And so then every, the, everything mm, the state lied mm, and said Temple Bar was mm, going to do is. It's it is what it is. That's, that's what they wanted. When their value, their view of culture is about money. Yes. It's not about <laughs> advancement of human, uh, human uh, knowledge and human experience and humanizing the world in which we live. They don't. Uh, it's all about if it makes a book, then it's yes. culture. If it doesn't make a book, then it's no bloody use. It's not a culture for them. It's only it's the bottom line. So that is where we went about. I mean, when, then we done the deal with Mick Wallace, and Mick Wallace then said about building, doing this building, and whenever we got the building back. We actually signed the deals to transfer the building to McWallace. 
that Mick Wallace done all the building and all the refurbishment on a handshake, on trust. Sure. No legal, no legal doctors passed hands. We done it on handshake, and that's the way we've always uh, our word is our bond. Fantastic. Our word is our bond. So people know if the Communist Party says something, that's what exactly what the Communist Party means. It doesn't have any agendas above the table, under the table, around the table, or out the back door. If we say something, that is what we mean. That's what we fight for. That's what we believe in. We don't have any other agendas. Just this is what you hear what we say. This is what we say. This is what we mean. And this is what we will do. Great. Now, we don't do anything else there. So that's what we did. And that is why we have the building, the building that it is today. And, uh, and, and to a degree, that's where uh, the, uh, there's a, a, a to a degree, it's, it's like a lot of things. Is, <coughs> politics is, uh, um, it's not just much of the left are reduced politics. To a degree, they fight within the framework of the establishment because they go down and talk about <coughs> socio-economic questions. But there's more to you and me and more to people outside this door than just purely economics. Or more than that. Because we can envisage, we can envisage a house before it's built, mm. or a painter can look at, they can have an idea in the head, and then they can develop that idea on, on the canvas. They can develop that idea on the canvas. They're more than just uh, sort of gas and water. There's much more deeper to the human being than that, and therefore much of the left is reduced to it. Because that's what the that's what the um, capitalism wants, the ruling class wants, is to argue in their terms. Yes. Start arguing their terms. Oh, you can oh, you get so you can spend more money on. Uh, you say, well, we should spend more money on housing. But where are you going to get it from? Do you want to take it from hospitals? Oh, do you want to take it from this? Or do you want to take it from that? So now you operate and you argue within their framework, yes. their logic. And now what you're doing? All you're doing then is reinforcing that alienation people have from society. Only feeling that, then basically forcing people to make choices. It shouldn't. Don't have to be that way. Doesn't have to be that way. If we look at if we look at society in a wider context, in a wider context, what are we talking about? What type of society do we want? What type of society do we want to, we want to hand over to our to future generations? And to that was the vision of the 1916 people of 1921. They presented the people of Ireland a vision. We can end the scourge of landlordism. We can end the scourge of poverty if we take control in our own hands. That was what people that bought the people. That won. That won the people brought them with them. We brought the people with them. But what are we offering today? Yeah. What is the left offering today? Oh, we, if we spend more money on this and we do a bit more of that and we tweak it here and we tweak it there and we tweak it everywhere, and where we end up? We just end up in exactly the same spot. Because we've been fighting landlordism since bloody landlords began. Yes. And we're still fighting bloody landlords. So how do we end? How do we stop the fight with landlords? We remove them. We simply remove them from the equation. Simply remove landlords. We end that problem. How do we end the problem of, of um, homelessness? By building houses. How do we end the problem of, oh, if you can afford to have, have healthcare, then you're healthy, or you have access to the health. If you can't, you stand in the queue. How do you end the health queue? By removing two tier by removing the private health system, by removing the private control, private insurance, only having one system, then all are equal, all are either standing in the queue or nobody's in the queue. There's enough for everybody to go around. 
So you, the way we approach it now, we're going to be fighting this. We fought the same battles in the 1920s around landlordism, slum, law, slum landlords, all of poverty and hunger. We've been fighting in the 20s, we've been fighting in the 30s, we've been fighting in the 40s. We're still fighting the same battles because basically we haven't fundamentally changed or challenged the system. The final point I would make, a final question, let's wrap this up. I think it'd be nice. We've, we've spoken so much about the past and the role of history in the present and, and everything else. Um, a lot of people, I suppose, listening to this would have never come into Connolly Books. Uh, and of course, no one can come into Connolly Books at the moment <laughs> or anywhere in the city with the, the way things are. But as, as, as the cloud of COVID will lift uh, in, in the weeks ahead, um, what would you say to someone who hasn't, when you come into this bookshop, uh, your worldview, I suppose, it's not that it's, it's challenged, but you're exposed to new, new ideas and it's a door that is open. Yep, yeah, yeah, if you wouldn't, it's not a nuisance. Uh, so if you come in here, uh, we don't have a big stock of, of the latest uh, Pulp Fictions. I don't mean that in the Pulp Fiction as the book or the film. <laughs> but we don't have a big stock of, of all the fiction books and stuff like that. It's a, we don't. Uh, we have a, it's, it's, a, it's a bookshop which is primarily about uh, Irish history, politics, about Irish literature, and about global politics and global struggles. And you, know, if you, go in there, you can ask someone about a book and they'll tell you what the book's, what's in the book. And say, well, the book is strength of the book is this, and the weakness of the book is that. Uh, and then also, if you say something, they'll say, well, yeah, maybe you should look at it. maybe maybe there's maybe another way of looking at that. That you just won't come in and say, oh, you can buy that book. But, but it's there's an engagement. You're in, you are will be engaged. You'll be encouraged to speak. You'll be encouraged to engage. Not to frighten people off. You don't have to come in with anything like that. But it's a place where you'll find. If you want to ask a question, someone will engage with you. May not, may, they'll probably give you an answer. You may, may not be the answer you want or would like, but it'll be an answer that makes you go off and think about it, at least. And that's what we like to do, is encourage people to come in, engage, think about it, take a book, and uh, maybe for something else, like all ideas are about changing and expanding your brain and making you think. Um, because why? The establishment tells you it's dangerous to think. It is very dangerous to think. Because basically, if you begin to think, then you begin to act. And if you begin to act, you begin to act independently of them. Yeah. Of them. So therefore, knowledge is about empowering you to make decisions which will advance you and your family and your community, rather than be someone who is basically emasculated and controlled. So the bookshop is a place where you can actually come in and find books about everything from going on in, what's going on in Cuba, what's going on in Venezuela, what's going on in China, or what's going on in Europe. You will find it here. You'll also find, uh, other, if you want to find James Joyce, or you want to find local poets, or local writers and stuff like that, that's, you'll find them as well. You'll find a range of history. Uh, we don't necessarily stock contemporary uh, establishment history. Uh, that's not something which we, uh, it's, there's enough of that around. There's enough venues for, for, uh, for, you and the Alpines and all these other individuals around the place who have histories. Uh, we'd rather go for histories of people, of the people's history, the unwritten history, or the, honest, uh, the unaccepted, or the unexplored history of the people, which is the most important things to us. It's about getting the layers of society which have been suppressed, get it out into the open to show that actually people are the masters of their own destiny. If they're armed and if they're mobilized, and have a view of where they want to go to. So it's a centre of ideas, it's a centre 
uh, of culture and it's a bookshop but I think a pedigree, a historic pedigree unlike any other in the city of Dublin. Thank you very much.